Welcome to Health Talks Now, bringing you the facts you need to keep you and your family well. We're happy you're tuning in today. Baptist Health is committed to providing compassionate, high-quality care that is centered on you. Listen to all of our podcasts to hear from Baptist Health physicians about the latest medical advancements and treatments. And get trusted information on timely health topics from our healthcare professionals. Whether you want to learn more about a specific condition or procedure or find tips for living a healthy lifestyle, Baptist Health is here to help you become a healthier you. Welcome back to another episode of Health Talks Now, a podcast brought to you by Baptist Health. This week, we're joined on the phone with Dr. Ian Holbrook from Baptist Health Medical Group, Obstetrics and Gynecology. Dr. Holbrook is not only a new dad times three, but he's also an OBGYN physician, which makes him the perfect person to talk to you today. Yep, that's right. Today, we're separating facts from fiction and diving into some of the most common pregnancy myths. Can you really induce labor with spicy food? <laughs> I don't know, but I tried just about everything toward the end of my pregnancies. This is going to be a fun episode and particularly relevant. Time Magazine recently estimated that by the end of their childbearing years, 86% of U.S. women have had kids. Let's get started. Here's our conversation with Dr. Ian Holbrook. Dr. Holbrook, thank you for joining us today. We're excited to get to talk to you. Absolutely. Happy to be here with you guys. So today we want to unpack some things you probably encounter on a daily basis in your practice. Pregnancy myths. We've collected some of the most commonly spread pregnancy tips and beliefs, and we're looking to you to tell us if they're fact or fiction. Before we get into our first myth, could you tell our listeners a little bit about you? Sure. Been here at this group here in Richmond at Baptist Hill two years now. Uh, originally from Ashland, eastern Kentucky uh, area. Very cool. My wife uh, grew up in Lexington. And we uh, spent some time at the Kentucky schools, and then I, I did residency training uh, in a different state. And we started having children and wanted to be back here around friends, family, and that sort of thing. So I decided to kind of move back to the central Kentucky area. Didn't really know a lot about Richmond when we moved, but uh, have really grown to, to love the area, love the people. Sure. Well, let's jump right off the bat with something that gets a lot of attention. Fact or fiction, wives' tales such as baby position, cravings, etc., can accurately predict the sex of the baby. That one would be uh, fiction. There's a lot of things that people suggest as a, as a marker for gender, but there's not a lot of good data behind any of it, really. Uh, there's a couple things we'll talk about later, I guess, but we can kind of dive into those a little more deeply at that time, but certainly not position or cravings, determining sex. Okay. Well, another common one is pregnant women should not get their hair colored or their nails done. What do you say? Uh, actually, both are, are fine in general. The concern there, I guess, is that some of the chemicals used in the dyes or to do the nails could be absorbed through the skin. Uh, so one thing that you could do is highlight instead of in place of pool coloring because you don't get any of the dye, any of the chemicals on the scalp itself. It's really just applied to the hair. But in general, what they use for the hair coloring is fine. And the same with the nails. Manicures, pedicures, fine. Polishes are fine. There's one particular type of gel nail 
MMA, and it just it requires a prolonged acetone exposure to take it off. Uh, nail polish remover. And yeah. So because of that, probably should steer clear of that one, but that's not a very common one. So again, in general, all that stuff's fine. So is it a concern just to ventilate the area? Would you suggest that it would, while these chemicals are safe and these practices are safe to continue, that try to be in an area where there's some airflow? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, sometimes those processes can produce fumes and that can be a little tougher on pregnant women, so certainly we try to be in a, in a, in a spot like that that's got good airflow where you breathe and get away from it if it's, if it's bothersome to you. And maybe to skip a manicure every in-between. Maybe don't go as often as you used to go. That's an approach, uh, and some people avoid the first trimester altogether. You know, that's when the, the organs are forming for baby, the most critical window of time. But uh, like I said, in general, all that stuff is okay by me. That makes a lot of sense. So, fact or fiction, I can't run during pregnancy. That one's fiction. Often I get this question from patients that are already running a lot. If it's part of something that you're already doing as an exercise routine before pregnancy, the general rule of thumb is you can, for the most part, continue the things that you were doing prior to getting pregnant. Okay. There are some exceptions with the running. I mean, there are certainly some long marathon races that may be a little ambitious for pregnancy, but Mm -hmm. most people's routines are fine. Are there any types of exercise pregnant women should avoid? Anything that's going to have a high risk of contact, so contact sports, anything where there'd be a risk of uh, trauma to the abdomen, things like ice hockey, soccer, basketball, thrill sports, skydiving, anything that would, you know, have a risk of a fall, snow skiing, water skiing, horseback riding, things that would use uh, a lot of heat, hot yoga, hot Pilates, these kinds of things, uh, probably not the best idea for pregnancy. So light impact is okay? Oh, yeah. Walking, elliptical, water workouts, swimming, stationary bicycling, some of the modified yoga, modified Pilates stuff, those things are all fine. Can you it's actually really important to get some exercise during pregnancy. ACOG, which is our governing body, recommends 150 minutes moderate intensity aerobic activity every week. So 30 minutes across five different days, something like that, is a really helpful way to stay healthy and maintain a normal weight during the pregnancy. Can you lift weights during pregnancy? Yes. Uh, again, it kind of depends on what you were doing prior to pregnancy. Sure. If you want to do anything that causes too much exertion or stress on the body, but most of the patients that I see that ask about weights, it's, it's lightweight things. They're not doing power lifting. Sure any squat techniques and this sort of thing. But sure, yeah, I think that's fine. Well, next, an understandably common fear. Bleeding during pregnancy means I'm definitely miscarrying. That one is not entirely true. There's lots of situations where a person may have some bleeding, especially early in the pregnancy. There is a thing called implantation bleeding that happens really early in the pregnancy. Okay. So it can cause some spotting for a patient. We also... Often on ultrasounds, we'll find little fluid or blood collections, first trimester pregnancies called subcryonic hemorrhages or subcryonic hematomas, and sometimes that blood can kind of make its way out. So certainly just the presence of the blood doesn't necessarily mean something nefarious or bad is happening. It's always good to check with your doctor if you're concerned about that. But especially if there's no pain involved, you know, it, it can be one of these other things that I'm talking about. Okay. 
Well, next up, I'm eating for two. So should I double my calorie intake? Definitely not on that one. Um, <laughs> Darn. Yeah, the, uh, really in the first trimester, you don't really need to increase your calories at all. Okay. Um, even in the second and third, depending on what your starting weight was, there may be no real need to increase calories in those trimesters either. It's really based on what your starting weight is, starting BMI, and then kind of talking with your doctor case-by-case, case, individualized kind of approach to diet and weight gain. You know, a normal, young, healthy woman with no medical problems and a, and a reasonable BMI starting weight, you know, should expect to gain 25 to 30 pounds, you know, during the pregnancy. But some folks, they're starting at a higher weight or they have some type of medical comorbidity, may need to gain no weight during the pregnancy. The baby will take what the baby needs. So you don't really have to increase the calories. The baby will just steal it from you. Okay. Are there foods that I should avoid during the pregnancy? I think we've heard and read about hot dogs, deli meat, you know, certain fish to include sushi and raw fish, soft cheeses. The cold cut, the deli meat, hot dogs, that sort of thing. And really with the soft cheeses too, the concern is a, is a bacteria called Listeria, which pregnant women are much more prone to contracting and can have a big impact on the pregnancy. But the overall rates of, of someone contracting that are still pretty low. With the meat side of things, deli meat, hot dogs, cold cuts, I would just say I would try to limit uh, what you're eating there. But if you were to eat that, it needs to be piping hot. Oh, you don't right. want it lukewarm. You don't want a little bit hot. You want it really hot to make sure that you're decreasing that risk as much as possible. On the cheese front, soft cheeses and unpasteurized cheeses that are really the issue there. So brie, feta, uh, gorgonzola, cheeses that have that kind of rind on it, mm-hmm. uh, with ones that you're clear of. Sure. On the seafood front, the issue there is some of those fish have high mercury levels, which could be a problem for pregnancy. So things like shark, swordfish, king mackerel, tilefish, really high in mercury. You wouldn't want to eat those in pregnancy, but those are uncommon fish anyways. The typical things, the you know, typical white fish, canned like tuna, shrimp, salmon, catfish, tilapia, that stuff really is okay. You want to limit it to maybe two, one to two you know, portions within a given week, about 12 ounces is the recommendation. So you can have some of that just in moderation. That's helpful. Before Kendra jumps into something else, can you talk to our listeners about the risks of excess pregnancy weight gain, concerns regarding gestational diabetes or in the risks to babies? Kind of going back to calorie intake, how much weight one should gain, you know, all those things can have a direct impact on the pregnancy as a whole and on, on baby. Gestational diabetes is a very common issue in our culture, especially with the high levels that we have baseline obesity. And you know, the pregnancy has a lot of physiological changes on the body. One of those things is insulin resistance happens in pregnancy. And so something that may not be a problem for a person who's not pregnant may struggle with that pregnancy-induced diabetes uh, during the pregnancy because of those changes and the weight gain and the calorie intake. That certainly has a, has a big role in how baby grows and develops. There's something called macrosomia where babies get very large, and that can be very make it very difficult to have a vaginal delivery, increase your risk for uh, C-section rates. And even outside of large babies, 
just excess weight gain in mom is enough to increase the risk for having a C-section. Mm, makes sense. Okay, so this one was slightly alarming to me the first time I heard it. A glass of red wine is okay during pregnancy. Yeah, I get this one a lot. In America, we have very strict guidelines on alcohol intake during pregnancy, but in a lot of the European countries, it's not... A little more lax. approach. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, certainly in some of these countries that drink a lot of red wine, especially, you kind of get this kind of mixed data that comes out. You know, really, the, the problem with alcohol and pregnancies, we just don't know how much is acceptable and how much is too much. You know, sure. there is a known syndrome that can affect babies when the mothers have had too much exposure to alcohol during pregnancy, and we just don't know what that line is. And that's the syndrome you were talking about. That's fetal alcohol syndrome, right? Right. There's a whole spectrum of disorders, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, that kind of go beyond just the fetal alcohol syndrome. That's okay. The more severe form. Oh, Problems with brain development, lower than average height, weight, small head size, abnormal facial features. Mm-hmm. You know, but for every baby that's born with fetal alcohol syndrome, the, the more severe end of the spectrum, there's many, many more babies that are born with that spectrum disorder. Oh, interesting. Uh, have problems with coordination, behavior, attention, learning disabilities. So there's a lot of data into these negative consequences. And so, again, just where you don't have a, a clear-cut answer as to what's too much and what's okay, and probably best to just avoid it entirely. Does that play, in, in your opinion, into the increase that we're seeing in things like ADHD and behavioral disorders in kids? It's possible. It's, it's hard to know. A lot of those things are multifactorial, meaning there's, there's numerous factors that may go into that and may okay. not just be one thing. But certainly, uh, we do have uh, a large amount of data, evidence that alcohol exposure in pregnancy can cause some, some of these issues with attention and learning and behavior. So we just wrapped up an episode talking about men's health, but one segment of it was alcohol usage and how it's underreported. As it pertains to pregnancy, I think, would you encourage your patient to be very candid and honest with you about consumption regarding alcohol and potentially tobacco use, just so you can be aware of what to screen for and what risks need to be discussed? Absolutely. I mean, it's just helpful to have all the cards on the table and really know what the situation is and you know we can have that conversation in a very non-judgmental way and just kind of talk about what is the usage and what are the triggers that may make one of our moms you know choose one of those substances whatever the substance may be because there's things that we deal with uh, above alcohol and tobacco certainly sure too. Uh, but you know then we can rally the right people and things resources to kind of help uh, bring that to bear on the situation see if we can get to a you know, more healthy place. Because, I mean, that's the goal is just that mom would be healthy, baby would be healthy. And, you know, pregnancy is a great time if you are struggling with some of those issues to to get serious about choosing health for yeah. your family and for yourself. Right. Oh, kind of along that lines, you, you alluded to it a little bit, but alcohol is likely used as a coping mechanism for something that's going on under the surface. And I think a lot of people use that as a way to deal with depression, anxiety, things like that. Is it safe for a mom to take a an SSRI or an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety drug in place of something like alcohol? Yeah, I mean, again, it's a, it's a case-by-case 
individualized kind of approach with these sorts of things, but certainly we would love for all of our mothers to be on zero medication, but sometimes medication is necessary. It's about selecting that medication that improves symptoms enough, improves quality of life enough, but it's still you know, safe for the pregnancy and the baby. And certainly there are uh, antidepressant medications that pregnant patients can be on that don't have uh, significant risks for the developing baby and can help that mom cope with stresses in her life and uh, address some of these issues that are going on long before the pregnancy ever started. Yeah. Sometimes these are medicines they can stay on you know, even after the pregnancy is over. So it's a risk versus benefit kind of thing. Okay, but this one's a biggie. As an avid coffee drinker, it pains me to ask, but fact or fiction, pregnant women have to give up coffee. That was fiction. You can have some coffee. Like with most of this stuff, you know, moderation, I think, is the key. The recommendation is 200 milligrams or less, which equates to one and a half, two cups of, of coffee in a day. You don't have to go cold turkey and cut everything out. As long as you're kind of limiting that exposure on a day-to-day basis, it's fine. Sure. Well, just to explain further for our listeners, what is the reason for limiting caffeine? Not just coffee. It could be soda or chocolate or any other stimulant of green tea. What effect does that have on the body? Yeah, so a lot of those caffeinated drinks outside of coffee also have a lot of empty calories, sugar, so the soda, you know, the pop, that especially is terrible for overall health, but mm-hmm. it kind of gets you into trouble with the weight gain portion of the pregnancy. And, and caffeine itself, there's data that suggests uh, increases the risk for miscarriage, the first trimester, and oh, low wow. birth weight uh, for baby back uh, delivery. Okay. Can a baby become addicted or dependent on caffeine if a mom drinks a significant amount? It would have to be a very, very significant amount. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of data to suggest addiction in the sense that babies can become addicted to uh, illicit drugs and this sort of thing where they have withdrawals after delivery. I don't think we're talking about anything like that. So I don't think there's strong data on that one. Okay. Next, fact or fiction. Pregnant women should sleep on their left side. Uh, that is the preferred side. Really, in the first trimester, it's not a big deal. Really, mainly talking about the second and third trimesters. You know, the idea is that as your uterus grows, it's laying directly on really important blood vessels that go across the, the back there. And during sleep, a several-hour period, you know, you've got all that pressure kind of limiting blood flow. So in order to optimize blood flow and thus optimize blood flow and nutrients to baby, the left side you know, provides the most release to those structures. So why should women avoid back sleeping? Yeah, it's just that. It's just the, um, the issues there with, with, the, with the vasculature and compression from that enlarged uterus on those structures. Okay, so that makes sense. That's really all we we're trying to avoid by being in the left lateral side. Okay. Well, this next one is particularly interesting to me given the increase in age of women having their first child these days. Fact or fiction, fertility begins to decline at age 30. Yeah, that one's true. We are seeing older moms than we did, you know, say 10, 15 years ago. But the ability to conceive does get tougher as you age, and that process does start even at the age of 30. I think some, you know, some terms that we use in the research to kind of help us think through some of this stuff is fecundability. 
uh, it's kind of a big word, but basically just means the conception rate per month. And if you look at fecundability across, plotted across age, it does decrease over time. And the infertile, uh, infertile or subfertility rates by age do decrease starting age 30. What are the risks of pregnancy in your 30s or even your 40s versus your 20s? Uh, well, the biggest thing is the getting pregnant and staying pregnant part. Like I was saying, you know, that, that measure of conception rate per month starts out pretty low to start with, even when you're young and healthy. The uh, chances of conceiving on any given month for a young, healthy couple is only 20%. And if you kind of plot that across time, you know, over a year course for that same couple, you know, they're only 57% at three months, 72% at six months, only 85% one year. And that, that rate of folks that don't get pregnant in that one year and timed intercourse and actually trying to get pregnant, that number grows steadily the older you get. So that subfertility percentage where it's maybe 15, 20% below 30, once you hit 30, 35, that rate climbs to 33%. 35 to 40, you're talking about 50% of couples are subfertile. Over wow. 40, it's uh, approaching 90% are subfertile. So that 35 mark is what we would consider advanced maternal age. Okay. And with that, you're not only dealing with the ability to get pregnant based on that data, but staying pregnant. So the quality of the eggs does start to decrease. So things like chromosomal changes, Down syndrome, these sorts of things are much more common the older you get. And those do often result in uh, first trimester miscarriages. Uh, older moms also are more likely to develop gestational diabetes, uh, uh. blood pressure issues, low birth weight babies, premature birth, C-section rates. All that is, is higher for women above that age 35. Well, next up, a woman's blood volume increases up to 50% during pregnancy. Fact or fiction? Not the blood volume that increases by 50%. It's the plasma volume. In the okay. Blood. So the pl- blood plasma is like, think of it as the liquid portion of the blood. Hmm. And actually, when you think about it, you increase the liquid portion of the blood. There's actually a relative dilution of the actual blood. So anemia is the result of that physiologic change. So where a normal blood level, hemoglobin level, might be 12 to 16 and someone's not pregnant, uh, oftentimes those people are below 11 in the second, third trimesters because of that, because of those types of hemologic changes. That makes a lot of sense. I just assumed anemia was related to the blood loss, but that, that's a good distinction. Why yeah, does... I mean, certainly there's going to be blood loss at delivery, sure. and the anemia is going to be worsened, but yeah, most, most pregnant women have a mild anemia through the majority of the pregnancy before any blood is lost, uh, and it's just uh, due to those many different physiologic changes that happen to the body in pregnancy. Why does that happen? Why, why does the plasma volume increase, and what are the effects that a mom may feel? Well, uh, it's a very complex, highly regulated system, as you might imagine. So there's a lot of things that go into that. Yeah. Uh, almost every organ in the body has some type of change that occurs during the pregnancy. And almost all of them result in the body working harder. Uh, it's a 
great stressor on mom's body to be pregnant, certainly. And this often unmasks a lot of problems. We were talking about you know, the diabetes issue, but high, high blood pressure is another one that can be unmasked by some of these stressors, these physiologic changes. And specifically with this blood issue, you know, by making mom anemic, symptoms like fatigue, weakness, headaches, dizziness, lightheadedness, among other symptoms are very common in pregnant women. And a lot of that is due to the anemia. I remember when I was pregnant, I, if I would stand up too quickly, I would get really dizzy and lightheaded feeling. Is that a result of, of what you're talking about here? Yeah, partly. The, you know, the dominant hormones in pregnancy are what cause these changes to the body. And one of the things that happens is that you have a uh, vessel, blood vessel dilation. You know, we call it the vascular resistance decrease. But essentially, the vessels dilate, which drops blood pressure in pregnancy. So if you live at point A when you're not pregnant, just being pregnant is going to take several points off of your your blood pressure. You're going to be living at a lower blood pressure through the pregnancy, and that really kind of continues into about the mid-second trimester. You know, 18, 20 weeks is really the low point for blood pressure. So you have this steady decrease in most folks' blood pressure from getting pregnant to about that 20-week mark. It rebounds a little bit after that, but for the most part, you're living at a lower blood pressure. So especially if you're a young, healthy, thin patient with no medical problems, you probably have a low blood pressure to start with. Mm-hmm. You get pregnant, you're now your blood pressure is even lower, and position changes, rising quickly from a seated or a lying position, standing for long periods of time. It doesn't take much to drop that blood pressure down a couple points, and you're having trouble getting enough blood and oxygen to the brain. People will pass out. People get lightheaded and dizzy. These are all common things. But again, it's just the it's just the changes that happen in the body with pregnancy. We'll be right back. Having a baby means having a lot of questions. We have answers centered on you. Baptist Health is here to answer your questions, ease your fears, and help you have the most joyful, safe, and healthy delivery possible. We support your goals and needs at every point, from the moment you first consider becoming a mom until after your baby's birth. We'll stay by your side to offer the support and resources you need during this special time. Find a location near you, sign up for a class, or register for a virtual maternity tour at baptisthealth.com. We're back with Dr. Ian Holbrook, to continue debunking common pregnancy myths. Really interested to hear the truth about this one. Heartburn during pregnancy means that baby will have lots of hair. There's actually some some truth to that. There's been a few studies the past decade or so, specifically at a hop, John Hopkins, that linked the two, the degree of heartburn with hair for baby. And it's just because, uh, again, the hormones that drive all this stuff you know, have a, have a role in both relaxing the muscle there in the esophageal sphincter so that the acid's coming up for mom, but it's also the same hormone that is uh, primarily responsible for, for baby's hair growth. And okay. so there, there is some data suggesting that those two things are linked, but it's not one-to-one. Uh, certainly there are plenty of moms that will have heartburn and babies don't have a ton of hair. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, next, vaginal delivery is not possible after a cesarean delivery. Fact or fiction? So fiction to that, with a caveat, you kind of have to, 
again, take it as a case-by-case, individualized kind of approach with this. So we have two terms that we use in regards to this topic. So there's TOLAC and VMAX. TOLAC is trial of labor after cesarean. Okay. And VMAX is vaginal birth after cesarean. So the VMAX is a successful TOLAC, you could say. Gotcha. Um, and certainly there are plenty of patients that had a C-section maybe with their first pregnancy for whatever reason, but are reasonable candidates to try and labor, try to have a vaginal birth after a C-section. What's the concern with trying a TOLAC or a VBAC after a C-section? You've got a scar now after the C-section on the lower part of the uterus, and that scar is weaker than the surrounding muscle in the uterus. So when the uterus starts to contract and labor, the concern is that that weaker portion over the overlying the scar would open. It's called a uterine rupture and is catastrophic for, for babies and uh, mothers as well. And mm-hmm. so that's really what we're trying to avoid. But you know, that, the rate of uterine rupture is actually really low for folks that have had one previous C-section, even with two previous C-sections, mm-hmm. if they're the kind of low horizontal scar, those rates are still low. You know, with, uh, after one, you're looking at a uterine rupture rate of less than uh, 1%. Oh, wow. Uh, if you have a different kind of scar, if you have what's called a classical scar, that's an up and down incision uh, on the uterus, uh, that uterine rupture rate can approach 10%. Okay. And it can be tough sometimes to tease that out because the scar on the uterus might not match the direction of the scar on the skin. So oh, maybe yeah. that you have a low horizontal skin incision, but your uterine incision is vertical. That makes a lot of sense because I think there's, um, especially in this movement now, getting back to more natural you know, unmedicated births and the birth plan and all that stuff. I think a lot of women want to go for that VBAC. What makes someone a good candidate? Yeah, so a good candidate to try something like this would be someone who had a C-section without a real attempt at labor the first time. So, for example, if, you know, with your first pregnancy, maybe it was breached, maybe it was not head down, it's not safe to labor, uh, it may have been that you just had a scheduled C-section. There was no attempt to try and labor and do all that. Uh, it may be that you're going to be delivered or you're going to be induced, but the baby's heart rate uh, was problematic. The baby wasn't tolerating the process. Mm-hmm. You never really got a chance to see if you could dive or push, these sorts of things. And so that would be another person who had a you know, good reason. Sometimes people have vaginal births first, and then these things happen to them later. You know, they have a vaginal birth or two, and then the third pregnancy, they end up with a C-section. Well, that person, you know, if they go pregnancy number four, is a great candidate to try and have another vaginal birth. Really, the best that's the, really the best predictor of success with a TOLAC is previous vaginal births and previous VBACs. If you've done it before, then much more likely that you can do it again. So the folks that have proved that they can have a vaginal birth are really good candidates for that. But, but again, some folks, you know, they don't get that kind of a fair shot to labor with the first one. And so you just got to kind of take all that into consideration. Another thing is the number of C-sections. Here at Baptist Richmond, we provide TOLAC options for patients that have had one previous section. There are places that will allow people to have uh, attempts for a vaginal birth after two previous C-sections. But, you know, if you were a person that had two previous C-sections, you've tried to labor twice and stalled out in labor, you had a rest of dilation, something like this could push the baby out, maybe it was too high in the pelvis, you know, that would be somebody, that's an example of somebody that's a bad candidate. Okay. 
it may be that there's uh, a shape of the pelvis is kind of an issue, perhaps. Yeah. So you have to just, again, it's a case-by-case, individualized kind of conversation. You just kind of have to look at why they had what they had in the past and kind of what the current situation is. Okay. There's a lot of talk and focus on self-care, which plays into our next myth. You shouldn't take hot baths while pregnant. Yeah, I mean, certainly you want to avoid saunas, jacuzzis, steam showers, this kind of stuff that raises the body temperature, the cork body temperature. The the number that is cited is 102 degrees, but the things that are really hot like that you want to avoid. Your general bath at home is probably okay if you don't have it super, super hot, though you know, I think sh- showers are preferred over baths in pregnancy for all those reasons. Well, next, let's dive into a topic that gets a lot of attention, especially in early pregnancy. Fact or fiction, severe morning sickness means you're more likely having a girl or a multiple birth. Yeah, the, the nausea telling you that it's a girl, there may be some data on that. It's, it's a little conflicting. I don't think we have a definitive word on that. But certainly for uh, multiple gestations, twins, triplets, uh, certainly there's a correlation there. Now, plenty of folks have really bad nausea, vomiting, and pregnancy. Up to 85% of all pregnant people experience some of that. So that doesn't necessarily mean you have twins just because you're nauseous. But the degree of the nausea certainly can be driven by you know having twins or triplets. What causes the nausea? Do we know the cause? Is it hormonal? Yeah, so we, we think it's driven by the HCG, which is the pregnancy hormone level, and that is at its highest in uh, the first trimester. So that that value rises rap- very rapidly and peaks around maybe nine to ten weeks. Often what you'll see for most people is they'll have nausea. It can be pretty intense even, but it does seem to subside you know, in the late first trimester, early second trimester, and that's driven by that HCG value falling. So it peaks about nine, ten weeks, starts to fall, people start to feel better. The second trimester is usually a lot more comfortable for them. In addition to a blood test, isn't HCG the hormone used to determine a pregnancy and confirm it? Yes. Yes. So that's um, something that we use to confirm pregnancy or follow the progress of a pregnancy same biochemical marker that urine pregnancy tests use that you buy from a store. It's also what we test for in the blood when we do a more you know, kind of accurate test here in the office. Are medications for nausea safe during pregnancy, particularly in that first trimester where it's the most intense? Yeah, they are. We have quite a few things we can use. You know, you've got your herbal things that do have some benefit and there's decent data for things like ginger, lemon, peppermint tea. Some folks opt to kind of try those sorts of things before they do medicines, but we have plenty of people that they need medicine. Like I said earlier, we would love for every mom to be on zero medication during the pregnancy, but sometimes you need medication. Yeah. Uh, We have several things we use in pregnancy. What we usually start with is vitamin B6 and an antihistamine called Unisom or Benadryl, and we've used that for decades. Super safe no real risk to it, and usually works really well. You take it at night. It's a preventative measure for the following day. So it's not something you take when you're nauseous, but it's something you take to kind of prevent it the following mm-hmm. day. And uh, we can write that as a you know a separate prescription for the vitamin B6 and a pill for the Unisom. But also there's some combination medicines on the market now, Diclegis and Bongesta, that it's a single pill with 
you know, uh, varying amounts of those things in it, and uh, sometimes a, kind of an extended release of those medications over the course of the day. So there's a few ways to kind of do the B6 antihistamine thing, but another common one we use is Finergan, and another okay. one is Reglan. Yes. Uh, Zofran is one that you'll see as well. We try to push that down the list a little bit, try yeah. to avoid it in the first trimester if we can. But again, sometimes folks are really, really sick, and you know, if we're dealing with weight loss and electrolyte imbalances, dehydration, sometimes you know we've got to use some of these bigger gun nausea medicines too. Most people, this generally subsides or at least gets significantly better after the first trimester, but there are some unlucky souls out there who do not fare that well. What is hyperemesis gravidarum and what does that look like? Yeah, so hyperemesis is, can be really tough. The vast majority of people will have nausea and it will resolve in that first trimester. Some people would persist beyond up into the second trimester. Usually by that time you hit 20 weeks, even those people have improved, but some people are nauseous for the entirety of the pregnancy and have nausea to the point that they can't tolerate solid uh, foods or even liquids, can't even keep water down, numerous bouts of throwing up throughout the day and night, weight loss, electrolyte imbalances. Sometimes people need to be hospitalized to help them through these these episodes. And so it can be really dangerous, especially if the electrolytes start to become imbalanced because that, that regulates a lot of different processes in the body. Um, and some of those people need to be on a lot of different medications for their nausea and, mm. and use medications that we wouldn't typically use secondary infertility and debunk this common belief. If conceiving was easy for me the first time, it'll be easy in subsequent pregnancies as well. There's some truth to that. I mean, there's a few factors you kind of have to think through, but just the fact of we tried to conceive, we got pregnant, I carried your pregnancy to term, I delivered, you've checked a lot of boxes there. And so it does improve your chances of getting pregnant a second or third time. But there's some things that you have to consider is what has changed since that last pregnancy. Has my age changed? Was that eight years ago? Is my weight significantly different now than it was? Have I had different types of infections, pelvic infections that could cause scarring or anatomical changes? Have I had surgeries in the pelvis? Then you've got to think about the male factors, too. You know, there's changes on the man's side of the equation, too, that that can make it difficult to conceive. So it's not a slam dunk. Just because you've done it once doesn't necessarily mean you can do it again, but it does Mm -hmm. improve your odds. Sure. All right, last but certainly not least, fact or fiction, you can induce labor by eating spicy foods, drinking castor oil, going for a walk, or having sex. Spicy food, no data for that. Okay. Um, Walking may be beneficial as far as helping to position a baby in the pelvis, lower in the pelvis. Okay. Baby can be lower in the pelvis and the head on the cervix, then that process of kind of getting started and prepared for labor can start. So probably is some benefit to walking. Sex uh, is an interesting one. So there is some data that suggests that semen has a pro-contractility effect on the uterus, meaning can cause uterine contractions. And so I don't think that's a definitive thing, but there is some data that kind of suggests that there may be a connection there. 
I certainly wouldn't recommend a mom taking castor oil at home. That's a pretty strong medicine that uh, makes muscles contract, and not just in the uterus, including muscles that bowel, too. So GI effects are pretty bad with that nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Uh Uh, It can be hard to stop that stuff once it starts. Pretty easy for a term pregnant woman to be dehydrated, and, and so that can get you into kind of a dangerous situation. So I don't think I'd take it into my own hands to take something like that to start labor. Well, it's certainly safe to say that pregnancy can feel like uncharted territory and can leave new and expectant moms with many questions. If moms-to-be want to go deeper, Baptist Health offers a great resource with our prepared childbirth classes. That's right, and although social distancing guidelines still apply at our facilities, we know how important this education is for parents-to-be, which is why we've made this class available online. This class provides detailed insight into the labor process, birth, baby care, and breastfeeding. Dr. Holbrook, do you recommend this class to your patients? And do you find moms who take this class feel more prepared than those who don't? I do. Um, I've had a lot of moms ask about the class, and I've heard from a lot of moms on the back end after taking it. It was a really helpful, informative process for them. A lot of the things they focus on in the class is, uh, less about the labor and delivery part, more about, okay, now you have a baby. Right. <laughs> uh, here's, you're going to go home by yourself. And, and you don't you get a guidebook. <laughs> take care of baby, and there's just a lot of questions people have about that kind of that next phase, and I think they do a really good job in the class about helping moms troubleshoot and think through, you know, everything that comes with baby. And so, yeah, I've heard really good things um, from folks that have done the class, and I would recommend it. I know it helped me a lot. Just take some of the mystery out of, I think that's part of the fear, especially for a first time mom is the unknown and it helped demystify some of that for me. Well, if you or someone, you know, is interested in the prepared childbirth class, visit baptisthealth.com and sign up via classes and events. Dr. Ian Holbrook, how can listeners get in touch with you? Well, I'm here at the office uh, almost every day. Um, So I'm in uh, yeah, here in the medical park, uh, our office is just part of the main hospital building. We're in Suite 201, uh, just above the Peds office over here on the back side of the hospital. Well, thank you again for joining me and Carrie today. Until next time. That was a good one, wasn't it? So good. Dr. Holbrook was great, and I learned a lot, too. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Dr. Ian Holbrook of Baptist Health Medical Group, OBGYN. If you enjoyed what you heard today, hit the subscribe button so you won't miss an episode. Share this episode with your sisters and girlfriends, too. You can check out the entire library of episodes at healthtalksnow.com or find a provider near you anytime by visiting baptisthealth.com slash provider. We'll see you next time right here on Health Talks Now. Thanks for tuning in to Health Talks Now. Staying healthy is a lifelong commitment, and Baptist Health can provide the support you need to lower your risks, improve your quality of life, and protect your long-term health. Visit baptisthealth.com to hear our other podcasts, learn about our services, and find more tips to help you stay a step ahead of your health. Baptist Health. Be a healthier you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as medical advice. The content in this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This podcast is not designed to replace a physician's medical assessment and medical judgment. 
Always seek the advice of your physician with any questions or concerns you may have related to your personal health or regarding specific medical conditions. To find a Baptist Health provider, please visit baptisthealth.com.